a new year full of surprises. But one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts of up to 89% off USPS and UPS services. So when postage goes up, your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com is like your own personal post office, wherever you are. You can even take orders on the go with the mobile app. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Schedule package pickups, automatically find the cheapest and fastest shipping options, and seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. There's even a supply store where you can stock up on mailing supplies, labels, even printers. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. All you need is a computer or phone and printer. Take a chunk out of your mailing and shipping costs this year with Stamps.com. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage, and free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. Have you been working hard to dominate your surgical residency? Do you want to help others to dominate no matter what stage of training they're in? Hi to all of our BTK listeners. My name is Nina Clark, general surgery resident at the University of Washington. And I'm Jessica Millar, general surgery resident at the University of Michigan. We both have had the privilege of working as behind the knife education fellows for the past year, and we're excited to continue growing our team. Are you a surgical resident interested and enthusiastic about surgical education? BTK is offering a two-year surgical education fellowship starting July 1st, 2023 and ending June 30th, 2025. Only residents who are starting a two-year block of professional development time away from full-time clinical activity will be considered, and you have to ensure that your institution and mentor approve of this fellowship. Fellows will be deeply involved in the BTK activities. The two of us have worked on an absite revamp, not tying video series, our new trauma video atlas, and a comprehensive student resource, just to start. While this is an unpaid internship, you'll have access to the, all the behind-the-knife resources, like illustrators, editors, recording and video equipment, and more to help make high-quality surgical education content. Applications are due April 16th, and you can find the link to the application in our show notes or on our Twitter page at Behind the Knife. You can also contact us at hello at behindthenife.org with any questions. We've had a great time so far this year, and there's only more to come. We hope you'll consider joining us. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Behind the Knife. After a long time, this is your host, Shreya Gupta, coming back on air to discuss a very sensitive topic. A couple weeks ago, you heard us talk about the episode with Dr. Romero Arenas, shedding some light on the Latinos, especially commenting on the underrepresented in medicine. Today, to discuss this topic further, we have Dr. Edward Barksdale. Dr. Barksdale is a pediatric surgeon. He's the surgeon-in-chief at Rainbow Babies and Children's Hospital in University Hospitals, Cleveland. He did his medical school at Yale, followed by medical school as well as general surgery residency at MassGen, and finally, pediatric surgery at Cincinnati Children's Hospital. 
He is the surgeon in chief, like we said, and a professor at Case Western Reserve University. And I'm very excited to have him on our podcast today as he's been a mentor to me for several years in during my residency. Dr. Barksdale was the president of the American Pediatric Surgical Association uh, pretty recently, and he's also served as the president of the Society of Black Academic Surgeons from 2013 to 2014. So who better to like comment on this very sensitive topics that we would love to discuss on our podcast on Behind the Knife? Dr. Barksdale, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Freya, thank you. Dr. Gupta, thank you so much for letting me join you tonight. And you know, one of the things I learned a long time ago, never ever correct uh, your mentees or protégés because they're going to be smarter than you are and your boss one day. I know you'll be my boss, but I, I don't want to offend my allegiances. So it's Yale College and Harvard Medical School. And so uh, I am a Yaley at heart. That's why you said Yale Medical School. But I went to Harvard Medical School and then trained at the Mass General. So, yeah. All right. Um, and this is this is Nina. I'm one of the other uh, Behind the Knife fellows this year. I was fortunate to get to interview Dr. Romero Arenas last week. So this is great to kind of continue the conversation about these important issues. Uh, Dr. Barksdale, uh, really to just kick this off, we're interested in hearing your thoughts on the status of, of underrepresented in medicine trainees as a whole. Uh, and specifically Black trainees, how many of our surgeons in training identify as Black, and, and how big is that gap when you compare it to the overall United States population and, and, and our patient populations who are treating? So you've probably seen the same reports that I have, and I've been speaking about this for a few years. Uh, but uh, as you know, the United States population is anywhere from about 12.5 to 13.7% African-American and probably about 18 to 20% Hispanic. And what we know is that that level of representation is not reflected in the halls of academic or other medical centers. And when we look at indigenous peoples, when we look at um, certain groups of, of Asians who are underrepresented. Uh, certainly, we have uh, what I've written, miles to go before we sleep. And uh, I think the most re recent paper that came out is actually a call to action for our entire field to think about how we can enhance representation, not for representation's sake or diversity's sake, but for the quality of patient care that we can provide by having a diverse workforce. One of the articles that we read in, in kind of thinking about this issue was in particular dealing with the experience of, of Black and other underrepresented in, in medicine trainees and, and the differences in residency and in medical school that those folks experience. So I'm curious your thoughts on on really what those differences are and and how underrepresented in medicine trainees approach training. Um, and it, we've heard both good and bad things about about that experience. And so I'm I'm curious your thoughts on that issue. So I'm going to say something to you that I probably will regret. I'm an old guy now. <laughs> when I look in the mirror, I see gray hair, but I feel like I was when I just left medical school to start my internship. 
And so the reason that age is important is I recognize that my lived experience as a resident from 1984 to 1992 is very different now. So now I think it's about 5.7% of of, uh, residents are African-American. When I trained in surgery at the Mass General, uh, I think it's the second largest training program in the country. I was the fifth African-American to train and the first in 1992 to be the super chief resident along with Lent Johnson. So our numbers were much less than they are now, although there is much, there are many more African-Americans across the spectrum entering medical school and residency than when I went through. Uh, The number of African-American men is actually lower than when I came through. But the the point that I want to make is that uh, and and I'll send you a picture that shows me as as my fifth year, the true chief resident, not chief, super chief resident year. I'm the only African American in, in the picture, and my experience as a resident was was actually great. I did not feel um, uh, there are times that I felt isolated, but who doesn't feel isolated when they are a surgical resident working every every other night? I, I didn't experience some of the issues of microaggressions uh, or other issues, although I did have one situation I'll tell you about. But I think that as the numbers have increased, and I think particularly in the last six to eight years in this country, the dialogue has begun to change. And people feel that people who are not like them, minorities, women, LGBTQ, are taking a place away from them in medical school, and it's creating unnecessary animosity. And so um, I think that there are many issues, and it may be easiest so that I don't get into a soliloquy to kind of take your questions one at a time and and give you my perspective. But the main point that I say that uh, when I came along as one of the onlys, I don't think it is is as tough as it is now when there are multiple uh, minorities uh, within a class and um, there may be a greater sense of isolation, even if there's camaraderie. That's uh, definitely something that I think has has borne out in in the news and in social media, that idea of, you know, this feeling of displacement. If somebody else has this spot in these elite mm-hmm. systems, then that means somebody else didn't get it, right? right. Um, and and it's, it's really striking to hear that that kind of said out loud. And, and frankly, um, when you compare it to the complete lack of, of underrepresented minorities, they're still underrepresented, right, in our in our training yes. programs. So, when you look at the numbers and then compare it to that that sense of of people taking somebody else's spot, I think it's really striking. Um, I'm curious how you you know you clearly a, a, as an old guy in your words have Thank mentored you for <laughs> <laughs> only in your words, right? Not mine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I I think um, that puts you in a position of having now mentored many people, probably who fit yes. into one or many of these categories. So I'm curious to hear a little bit of your thoughts on. The positives that that ha- come from being, you know, maybe not the very first in their programs who are Latino or Black, but one of several, and and now you know blazing new trails, and how that has mm-hmm. has really benefited them that background. So I, I I'll I'll speak from my own perspective, and then I can speak from that of those that I have mentored. Um, I tell people I am an African American male, cisgendered, who was born and raised in the South. 
during at the end of what's called the Jim Crow era or at the end of segregation. That deeply colors who I am in the sense that there are certain levels of environmental trauma that I grew up, the structural racism. And for me, injustice ran through the streets that I grew up in, like rainwater after a storm running to a street drain. And so it often was that you got caught up in that level of injustice. You came to develop a relatively thick skin for certain things that if you got completely caught up in the microaggressions, the macroaggressions, um, the isolation, then you would never make it uh, even out of that hometown. And so one of the advantages for me is having grown up in the environment that I, I grew up in, it gave me a level of, of strength uh, in the environments that I subsequently went in uh, for training. I hate the term resilience. Um, this concept of resilience for me is bouncing back. I love the term anti-fragile, which means that from chaos or disorder, you become stronger in those broken places, as Hemingway wrote about in Farewell to Arms. So Lynchburg, Virginia made me anti-fragile, and the experiences that might have broken me that I didn't have as a child, I was prepared for. Resilience to me means bouncing back. My experience prepared me to bounce forward uh, after after falling. And so um, there were certain advantages for me that existed in, in those times. And, and it allowed me to not take myself, my negative experiences so, so harshly. I must say, before I talk about the people I've mentored, um, I have actually felt more microaggressions and more difficulties the further that I have progressed along my career. When I finished my fellowship training, a prestigious training in pediatric surgery, I can remember going to, to Pittsburgh Children's and one of the residents of all people telling me, <laughs> I, you know, it's people like you that took my place at Harvard Medical School or at the MGH. And, and I was appalled. I was named the super chief resident at the MGH. There were, there were 10 other people not of color who didn't get selected. Uh, and I, I took that in a, in a somewhat insulting way, but I moved on. However, uh, I have described it as you rise up the mountain or if you rise up Mount Everest uh, as a woman, as a minority, uh, the, the air gets thin and the path gets treacherous. And you have to be careful uh, with your foot steps that you don't fall off the mountain. The best thing for success is having a Sherpa, that is someone who knows the path to the top and someone who can help you. And I talk about this Sherpa in the, the classic way that people who know me, who I make metaphor, but that Sherpa is something more than a mentor. That's a person who can be a sponsor. So that takes me to the the younger trainees, the people that I have both mentored and sponsored. Uh, the advantage of, of a mentor, particularly someone who's a little bit more senior, is they can help you understand the terrain before you get there. Um, you know, a mentor advises, a sponsor kind of decides for you. 
And so having a sponsor is, in my mind, more the Sherpa. That's someone who's taken that role. That's someone who says, stop, let's move quickly. Don't step there. That's a false area. And what I've learned in the mentorship and sponsorship is that I feel that in your generation, people are experiencing much more trauma than, than I did. The trauma I felt was that I people didn't look to mentor me um, because I didn't look like what they envisioned a leader would be. Now I think that people are, are almost purposely ignored. And the goal for those of us like me who have excelled to some degree is to be equal opportunity mentors um, and sponsors. Uh, I have, have, I'm proud to say that I, and I don't wear this as a badge of courage, I have black men, black women, white women, uh, white uh, men, Asians of both genders, and I have uh, several LGBTQI protégés, not just mentees, but protégés, people I've sponsored including a transgender man who I'm really proud of, almost as though he is my son, or I should say they are my, well, um, they are my protege. I won't even add a gender to that. But but anyway, I think there's, I believe there's such a great importance for mentorship and sponsorship as two separate things. I told you I'd give you a soliloquy, so you should have cut me off. No, that's exactly what we're looking for. And I think that really blends in well with something that I wanted to bring up um, is this underrepresented in medicine and um, the recent press that um, it has gathered in resident as well as faculty attrition rates. And um, especially you know, um, in black, in Latinos, in mm-hmm. females. And so can you tell us a little bit what what do you think is the issue here? Where mm-hmm. are the major leaky parts that we, yeah. we need to be cognizant of? Well, such a complex question. And I think that when you look at the pipeline, there's a great diagram of the leaky pipeline. It was initially, I think, designed for women in medicine and it shows where people fall out. When I look at my own life and my own experience, my mother uh, never graduated high school. She was a seamstress in a sock factory. My father graduated um, high school. He was a mailman. And the, the challenge that exists is it's hard to be what you can't see. It's hard to build something, your career, if you've never seen someone else do it. And so the first part of the leaky pipeline for me is that part that happens from elementary school to junior high school. When I was at Garland Roach Elementary School in Lynchburg, Virginia, I was so excited one day at show and tell. The teacher asked, Ed, what, Edward, what do you want to do when you grew up, grow up? And I stood up proudly and I said, I want to be a scientist and an astronaut. Uh, I was the only African-American kid in my class and only one of three in the school. The teacher laughed at me. And then the whole class started laughing. And then I went to the playground and one of the kids, not his last name will be given, but his first name was Jimmy. uh, He used a racial epithet and said, blank, don't become astronaut. And so my my dream was devastated. I actually left school. I I ran away from school and, and went home. And so I think that what happens is, and it's better now than the 1960s, 
is that people don't see what they want to be. And so they don't think they can do it. Uh, that can go through high school. When it comes to college and, and also at elementary school and middle school, there's inadequate preparation for the sciences. I think you both know that if you're not, if you don't have a proclivity, proclivity for science and you don't do well, you will never make it past bio-organic chemistry in order to, to do well on the MCATs and get into medical school. So that's the first big part of the leaky pipeline. But when I was at Yale, I met people who had done really well on their SATs, who did really well in science, but they fell by the wayside because uh, they had no one to kind of nurture them through different struggles, not academic, but mostly social struggles. And that's the next level of, of where the pipeline becomes leaky. People may have the academic ability, but they don't see a cadre of people like them or they're not part of a group that reinforces their aspirations. And I think that lack of reinforcement of aspirations can continue into medical school. And then the final part of the leaky pipeline, which I have been heavily involved in with the Society of Black Academic Surgeons, is the concept that we refer to of mentorship, sponsorship, and even allyship. Uh, in, in fact, that was the title of my presidential address in 2014. Um, and uh, miles to go before we, we rest, um, mentorship, sponsorship, and allyship as a way of getting people uh, of, of, of all backgrounds from where they are to where they want to be. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Are there any specific uh, projects, any specific um, medical societies that you can guide and point to our listeners who are doing, fa- you, you know, something fantastic, something very helpful to uh, the younger residents and the younger medical students wanting to excel in this in this field. So, in some ways, I'm a homer, um, meaning that I'm a big fan of SBAS. But what I would recommend for mo- most people is your best support is going to happen locally. And the goal is not to isolate yourself and only hang around with uh, the women you feel who are like you, who are from your background, or the the men who are from your ethnicity. I think the greatest support systems that most of us will have will be across every domain in the location that we are. It's always nice to connect with people outside of your institution so that they can give you advice or perspective so that you don't feel alone or you feel that you have a friend uh, when you go through tough times. But I would emphasize heavily that you should reach your hand and your heart out to people in your program, uh, learn to be vulnerable and and learn to to grow together and and then uh, to look for other allegiances distant. I would like to take a step um, further into this conversation 
because mm-hmm. uh, being a surgeon and being a leader, you have seen so many um, surgical residents go mm-hmm. in and out of the system. But at the same time, you have this unique perspective of other medical residents as well. Do you think this problem is deeper rooted in surgery or you think that this is same in all uh, fields of medicine? So I think it's the same in all fields of medicine, but surgery, because of its rigor, its competitiveness, uh, it exposes these weak spots in a much greater way. Few people would argue that surgery is a performance profession and that the stresses of performance uh, are immediately present. I've often said as a surgeon, your dirty laundry gets displayed every week at M&Ms. And as a resident, it gets displayed every day, um, sometimes quietly, in the call room or sometimes at the bedside. So I, I think it's more exposed in surgery. And also the culture of surgery creates levels of insecurity in people that make them feel more vulnerable um, than maybe they should. Or if someone is an underrepresented minority and not as strong, uh, they may have some of this uh, imposter syndrome. Uh, And so all these things converge to develop um, stress that leads to people wanting to avoid that stress and leaving surgery as a career, um, which is most unfortunate. So I think that we as leaders and is, is to kind of understand better the environment and understand better how we can support people in their career aspirations and and leaning in. And I think that there are many pressures on people beyond ethnicity. There are life pressures, when to get married, when to childbear. Is this profession going to be friendly with all of my other life goals, whether they be geography or, or, or others? And in the old days of surgery, when I came through, we didn't give a care about that. My attendings were, uh, you know, you've got to give up everything to be a surgeon. And I think now that, you know, as as we're much more aware of the impact on, on all of us, we can be sensitive to ethnicity, gender preference, gender, uh, life preferences, and, and lean into to cultivate and attract the best possible talent for surgery. That is a great segue to to my next question, which is, you know, it's it's match season and and we'll be getting our our match results very soon here. Um, And I know a lot of folks are excited and also really trying to to fix this problem, um, you know, at both the resident and faculty level in programs who are trying to recruit from diverse applicant pools, get a better class that more accurately reflects our population and the patients that we treat. So what are your thoughts on as we are looking to applicants and as we're interviewing folks and thinking about who to accept into, you know, surgical residency, how can we do a better job of encouraging these residents without just saying DEI initiatives exist in our program or paying lip service to some of these things? Great. I so appreciate you asking me that question. Um, I have I have friends across the country who have really, really senior positions in DEI at the major corporations. 
And when they heard me say what I'm going to say now, um, they attacked me because they think that I have destroyed years of DEI initiatives. But I don't like the term diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, I like the spirit of it, but I think the implementation um, often does not go in a way that promotes success. And if you look at the data, uh, it does not, uh, especially in medicine. And what I mean by that is that sometimes DEI is solely about representation. I think that the best approach is what I call a belonging initiative, where we create environments where everyone feels they belong and their responsibility is to help everyone else belong. And so when we create standard DEI uh, programs, we sometimes um, attempt to change a climate, uh, which is impossible to change, or to to strong arm a culture that doesn't change. So what I think our programs need to focus on in their recruitment is helping everyone understand that we're gonna respect your individual difference in this in environment. And we want to make you thrive irrespective of how you see yourself, but more respectful of what you bring. There's a certain feeling I, I hear when I listen to interviews that, oh, um, we think Ed Barksdale's a good fit, or we think that is a good fit. I don't like that. Instead of being a culture fit, we should think in terms of having a culture add. And that means that we are respecting what they're going to add to us, not the fact that they fit in with us. And so sometimes what DEI programs are are about is finding the right minority to fit into the culture instead of creating the environment that will make sure that whoever that is flourishes, including the white male who is the prototype. And so again, uh, and, and this will be broadcast, I'll get a ton of people saying, Ed, they're not going to hear you right. But again, I think representation is absolutely important. But diversity for the sake of diversity uh, to me, uh, sets up the results that we've seen here with attrition. People are brought in because of how they look, but no one is thinking about how we can make the environment such that it's sticky and that people don't want to leave because they feel they're contributing, they're wanted there, they have a place, they belong. I have a follow-up question for you over there, Dr. Berkstow. So you know, we're talking about match, we're talking about recruitment of younger um, minds um, coming into medicine, which is a long haul decade worth of training. But what can, what I feel is the most important thing is, is that the leadership at these hospitals who are trying to recruit also needs to have these said changes. Um, so, Unless I come to a program and I'm interviewing where I see um, this diversity, this representation in the faculty, it's hard for um, for it. It doesn't matter what they are saying in their spiel and what how. Even if they see me as an additive to their program, it doesn't make me feel um, seen till you see that in the faculty and the leadership. So, what what do you think? 
can the hospital systems in general and big universities do in order to really um, change that? I think your question is phenomenal. Um, I think that sometimes, again, the DEI uh, concept is lip service in order to create representation, but not to create a cultural change in the environment. What I have told the people that I sponsor, and and many of the people that I mentor, but definitely the people that I I sponsor, you know, if if you want to know if you will um, if you will succeed in a program, uh, look at the C suite, look at the ultimate leaders in a hospital, and sometimes the concept of DEI, and I have this in a talk, is what I call a revolving door. And so when you look at it, there's a lot of people who are diverse on the first floor, and there are not very many people who are diverse on the second floor, and there are fewer on the third or fourth floor. And when you look at the penthouse, the penthouse is very homogeneous, and and you're not a part of that homogeneity. Um, And I I, I say that because uh, one of the things that I learned as a as a working class kid uh, going to New York City once, I stayed in this, I was a fencer in college and I stayed in a penthouse suite uh, on Central Park South. I'd never even imagined what this was. Someone was sponsoring me. And so uh, he said, why don't you come up to my apartment? And there was a guy in the elevator, a butler in the elevator, and you know he put a key in and I was like, there are no buttons. And when the when we went up and we went up and we went up and when we opened up the apart the elevator opened into this apartment with this incredible view of Central Park and the entirety. And I realized that, you know, the people in the penthouse are very different than the people on the first floor. And so as a woman or minority, if you're looking at if you aspire uh, to rise in surgical leadership, it's going to be so critical for you to find those buildings where you can have access to that elevator, not the stairs, because you'll get exhausted running up the stairs to get to the penthouse and the door will be locked or, or inaccessible. And so again, I, I think that we need to put pressure on our institutions to diversify. And the way that we put pressure on them is at times there are talented people like you who decide I'm not going to train in that institution. Um, and, you know, if, if they say they want the best and the brightest, but they're not creating an environment for you to flourish, then you need to find a place where there's that person in the corner that says, come on into this elevator. Let me get you to the penthouse. It's like an elevator Sherpa, so to speak, <laughs> get you the that, top of right. the top of yes. the uh, <laughs> fancy New York apartment building instead of Everest. Yes. And so let me change that a bit because someone will hear this and say, OK, that's a great metaphor. But I would say that stand back from the building and look at who's on the 10th floor, the 20th floor. You, it doesn't have to be at the penthouse. But again, if no one is making it to the mid-level floors, it's telling you something about the environment. The flip side is that you can look at other buildings and say that, gee, you know, let's call a place. The University of Pittsburgh has 
created, you know, multiple leaders elsewhere. Dean of you know, my partner when I was there was dean of the medical school. Another is surgeon in chief. The person uh, who trained at the University of Pittsburgh who finished I am is the president who's African American president and CEO of the Brigham and Women's Hospitals um, and Mass General. That that partners. He's president of the Brigham. The point is that there's certain environments in which people have paid uh, uh, close attention to mentoring and developing leaders. Um, there's a woman from the University of Pittsburgh, uh, one of my residents, who is the dean of the University of Virginia School of Medicine. So I, I would judge a place often by what its trainees and faculty have done once they leave. Great. I, I think, um, you know, we we have listeners from really all stages of training and practice, and a lot of them may not be in a place where they have immediate mentorship or sponsorship that they can find. But I know that um, SBAS has really been that source and that resource for, for many trainees across the country. So Absolutely. we're hoping you could tell us a little bit about the work you've done with SBAS in the past and currently, uh, yeah. and how folks can get involved. Great. Well, uh, talking about SBAS is almost like talking about one of my children. And the reality, SBAS isn't my child. There's so many of us, particularly in my generation, who've poured so much of our heart, soul, and spirit in the cultivation of the organization. The, I think the first SBAS meeting was in 1987 uh, at Duke University. And many people look, look at the title Society of Black Academic Surgeons. But the original group was probably about 50% uh, African-American and non-African-American. Some pretty famous luminaries in American surgery like David Sabiston uh, were a part of starting the program. And the goal was to decrease the attrition of African-Americans in surgery and to increase the representation of African-Americans in the realm of academic surgery as ultimately one day leaders in American surgery, uh, uh, division chiefs, department chairs, deans, and potentially CEOs. And so I would say that Ed Barksdale was of that first generation of people coming through this organization. I went to the second meeting in Boston in 1989. Uh, I was in my second year in the lab. So my fifth, uh, when the lab after a third year, I was in my fifth year postgraduate. And from there, it's been history. There were uh, Claude Organ, who was Mr. Everything, editor of Archives of Surgery. Uh, there was LaSalle LaFalle, who was the first African-American or second African-American president of the American College of Surgeons, head of the American Cancer Society, Mr. Everything, um, chairman of the department. And so there were these very senior people who helped us understand how to negotiate academia. And also that's the mentor role. And they also helped sponsor us, but they, they mandated that we pay this forward. And so the organization began to grow. And so if my first meeting was in 1989, I was a, a regular there. Uh, I ran the program committee for a number of years. Um, there are a group of us who just uh, kind of developed together, and I think it was a, some degree of magnetism by young people coming and seeing people who look like them, who were moving up in surgery, that they said, oh, I'm smarter, taller, better looking, 
better surgeon than Ed Barks, so I can do more than that. And that's what you want. You always want your own children or your professional children and not a, a pedantic or condescending way to, to exceed what you do. And, and then, uh, so I learned in this organization, all of my current thoughts and theories on mentorship and sponsorship. And in 2006, uh, I think I felt that I did not get the complete mentorship and sponsorship that I, I needed to become a leader. I decided that I wanted to help create something for others. And so in 2006, uh, I negotiated with the University of Pittsburgh in lieu of a bonus, which was going to be 25% of my salary at the time, a fairly significant bonus, to start the Society of Black Academic Surgeons Leadership Academy 1.0. And with that $50,000 uh, donation, um, we developed a program that um, I've forgotten all the numbers now. 175 people have gone through Patricia Turner, who is a CEO of the American College, Andrea Hayes Jordan, um, Ayla Stanford, who uh, ran the Black Doctors Consortium and was a CNN runner-up for CNN Hero of the Year. Um, uh, there are a number of people who went through this leadership program. And so um, it continues now. Uh, Paris Butler, I mean, we there are men and women. But the point is that uh, this was a very structured program in which people would get exposure to potential mentors and sponsors who could help advance their career. And when I think about the Leadership Academy 1.0, different from now, it was like a lattice or a scaffold that was laid out for people to attempt to, to climb up uh, when there was no scaffold um, before. And um, you know, I think that's what we all must do Regardless of ethnicity, we have to think about, as what my grandmother would say, how we can plant trees in whose shade we'll never sit. And uh, that becomes the approach. So I'm, I am very excited about SBAS. And I think that if you listen to the leaders of the AWS and the Asians, they will say that they've used the model of SBAS to build their programs. We are cohesive. And of course, we're surgeons, we're occasionally competitive, but the opportunity to meet with people who share your background, your perspective, but who you can also share your strengths with to empower them has been really important. And so if I tell you that I love the concept of SBAS because I'm African-American, I love the concept of SBAS because I'm a surgeon. And what I mean is that this should be the format by which we develop surgery at the University of Washington for everyone, or at Case Western Reserve, that we think about the ways to be closer and to nurture each other and to recognize that there are going to be some people who are basic science uh, inclined, some who are going to want to do advanced clinical practice or clinical trials, and some of those who may want to be in private practice, but, but develop means of having everyone feel that they belong and the talents can be nurtured and developed. Well, thank you, Dr. Barksdale. Um, I think that our next generation will definitely be standing 
on shoulders of giants like you who have put in so much of the foundational work in um, SBAS and other institutions and in so many other ways that you have uh, given back to the community as well as uh, the surgical residency. We really appreciate it. I hope that our conversation in this episode has you know, pull some strings and given some perspective to people who are looking for mentorship. And like Nina said, sometimes that's not so readily available. So uh, we really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you so much for inviting me. And I, I want to end with uh, a statement about something you just said. Uh, we It's out of ego sometimes we say that we that we're standing on the shoulders of giants, as I think Asimov said, so we can see further. Um, But I wonder what happens when those giants fail or when they fall. I think it is our our goal to to look at those people that we have giant, that we think of as giants, but to forge a new path and and to to understand what they did, not create their mistakes and uh, honor and respect them, but uh, truly the the standing on their shoulders, I, I sometimes worry, is is uh, too ego driven by the giants and and not creative enough by the next generation. So I would encourage those of you who are listening is to to be creative, to be collaborative, and to recognize how you can advance the field by advancing others and by also heavily focusing on the care that we provide for patients in a way that will promote great outcomes as well as equity. Thank you so much. Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day.